Hello and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Asia Darbinian and I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. I have a pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Caroline J. Dean. Dr. Dean is Charles J. Style Professor of History and French at Yale University. She is a cultural and intellectual historian of modern Europe. Her work explores the intersection of ideas and culture, most recently in the context of genocide. Dr. Dean is the author of five books, including The Fragility of Empathy After the Holocaust, and aversion and erasure. She has also written extensively about gender and sexuality in France and all the intellectual history of French theory. Today, we're here to discuss her most recent volume titled The Moral Witness, Trials and Testimony After Genocide, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Hello, Dr. Dean. Hello. Thank you for taking time to talk with us about your book. I really enjoyed reading this book. And uh, as I told you, I also ended up signing it for my history of genocide class. And actually, we're going to discuss this next week with my students. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's very <laughs> nice of you. <laughs> sure. In Professor Samuel Moyne's words, this is, and I quote, a brilliantly insightful and thought-provoking book on how the imagination of testimony evolved, end quote. So why don't we start with an overview of the book? What is it about and what motivated you to choose this subject? Um, it's really about the how genocide, from a cultural point of view, became differentiated in the public mind from other forms of violence. Because as you know, genocide didn't have a name until 1944. Uh, and it was coined in a very particular historical context to talk about the Holocaust of European Jewry, even though obviously the Armenian genocide preceded that genocide by uh, many years. And Yet there was no, and, and even the term genocide was a legal term with very specific meanings. And in many ways, one of the things I always found very intriguing is that cultural genocide, which was part of Raphael Lemkin's, the, the lawyer, the Polish Jewish lawyer who coined the term, he, he had a concept called cultural genocide, which he meant the destruction of culture. Right, and that particular dimension of genocide was not institutionalized as part of the law because it was too hard to how do you legislate culture what a the erasure of culture how do you legislate how do you remedy the damage the the way it was taken up was primarily in um, restitution of property right. so but when people do not want to go back <laughs> or when they cannot go back or when there is no property to claim um, or, and, or things like language is destroyed, uh, homes, I mean, things that are absolutely invaluable and for which there are no uh, surrogates or substitutes, obviously the law doesn't have as much of a role to play or, or, or can't accommodate the, the, the injury, right? This is true of all tort law, but 
you know, when you haven't lost, you know, I, I think genocide obviously requires some understanding of what it meant to suffer through this kind of violence and what it meant for an entire people to have been the targets of annihilation and exterminate, exterminatory violence. And so, I'm sorry, I should, I should, this, this is a very long-winded answer, but I think it's, it's important to go through these steps. So, so in essence, what I was trying to understand is, so how did we come to understand the kind of suffering that genocide entails? How did we, that this, this term that had no meaning until 1944, but had, has always been with us, right? Um, how did we in the late 20th century begin to understand it's the ravages of the violence of genocide and to differentiate it from combat, war, colonial violence, other forms of mass atrocity? Right. Uh, well, before we go into the discussion of all those genocide, mass atrocities and uh, witnesses, could you please elaborate a bit more on the title of your book, The Moral Witness? Well, because again, one of, I think it's not unique, obviously moral witnesses have existed since uh, Christianity. I mean, this is a, a comes from the Greek. <laughs> the, it's, uh, it's a term referring originally to Christian witnesses. Um, meaning that they spoke, they defended their beliefs, and they testified to something they believed was sacred. In early Christians, it was God. Um, and obviously, over time, the word, moral, the word moral witness did not exist, but the word witness was secularized and came to mean uh, people who observed suffering and reported testify to it. So the abolitionist movement, uh, they often called, abolitionists called themselves witnesses. In the 19th century, that tended to mean to testify to suffering that was very distant from you, not suffering that was proximate. So this was the Western spectator of brutality abroad. Uh, and especially the Turkish, it, it was famous in the, the British talked about the violence against uh, Christians in the Ottoman Empire. And this was called witnessing, right? These pamphlets, right. Toynbee's work on the Armenians was a form of witness. Um, after the First World War, soldiers began to testify to the violence they had themselves experienced. So the, the moral witness, though, so, so this term witnessing is quite broad and applies, but, but it really means testifying to wrong wrongful injury and, and injury, uh, wrongful injury of other people. And after what happened, this idea of moral witness is uh, the philosopher Margalit, Abishai Margalit, developed this term to describe specifically the witness to the Holocaust of European Jewry, who creates through performance, through the by creating community around the, the testimony of his or her suffering. And so that it's a specific kind of testimony that is, uh, and, and he's trying to address something that I think is a problem, problem but we can talk about that, um, which is how do you testify to something that cannot be witnessed in some way? How, how can you testify to suffering that so surpasses what most people can imagine that you have no words for it 
if, if there are no words to describe suffering, how do you testify? Uh, what does it mean? And he coined the term moral witness to talk about that kind of suffering, to testify to the kind of suffering that we now believe has no, is not possible to describe. Uh, well, as you mentioned, one and uh, probably the most famous case of genocide, um, my next question is about which genocides you decided and chose to include in this volume and um, why did you make that choice? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think because I was focused historically, there were two, two problems. And one is there, we know the Armenian genocide, regardless of denial, is a genocide in the way that we understand it. Obviously, the Holocaust of European Jewry is a genocide, and there are many other genocides. So my, but since my question was historical, which is how do you differentiate genocide from other forms of crimes or other mass atrocities? When did this begin to happen? The first thing for a historian, at least, is to know why or to deal with the fact that the Holocaust for European Jewry, of, of, of European Jewry, became the paradigmatic of all genocides. So I wanted to, as it were, you have to begin from there in order to leave it behind, if that makes sense, because clearly something happened to make this genocide in particular was the genocide that, that established the historical meaning of genocide in, in the, the experience of genocide, right? It, it, gave, it gave sort of, you know, flesh to the bones, the bones were the facts, and the meaning, the cultural meaning of genocide was given or, or through the testimony of European Jewry in different ways. I mean, it's obviously very complicated. And so I, but I thought, well, there was an Armenian genocide and a lot of literature about it. There was war, obviously World War I in the West. Now there were colonial genocides. Right. So we have to think about that. And yet colonial genocides did not, if for all kinds of reasons, colonial genocides also did not inspire, inspire, obviously among the people who suffered, they did, but I'm just saying in, in terms of a consent, a meaning, a consensus around the meaning of this suffering only seemed to congeal around the question of how the European, uh, how European Jewry suffered. And so it seemed to me that I had to find out how come that was by moving away from some of the more conventional explanations and going back to see how was the Armenian genocide, you know, discussed, described to the public, right. what kind of terms did Toynbee use? What kind of, so that's in some way, and to go look at kind of, especially in the Armenian case and even the Jewish case before the Holocaust, victims were not recognized as having, as having any credibility. And so anyway, to, to, to make a long story short, what I had to do was try to figure out when did, when, because it, the, the power of genocide only comes, the power to describe it only comes when you believe the victim and you give credibility to victims. So victims, so when did victims become credible testifiers? Because it, when Toynbee, and this is the oncologist used this example, wrote about the Armenian genocide, he had to, he wrote about it. He had to present himself as the narrator of this tragic story, and the Armenians who he had to, who were anonymous in his story, um, 
he had to give them credibility. They did not on their own. They collected time. There was obviously a lot of documentation, but but the Armenians, um, though they even even though they had the support of many people, they did not become the paradigmatic victims until and even now, obviously, it's very problematic. So, right. Right. Well, following that, um, as uh, you mentioned, the Armenian case. So uh, in your very first chapter, uh, when you discuss the trial of Solomon Telerian in Germany, uh, you uh, describe him as, and I quote, a symbol of human conscience. Mm -hmm. And um, it seemed like uh, he embodied the Armenian suffering that was on trial. So how did that happen? And how do we understand that? And how did it affect the role of witness? Um, well, I don't know how much people know about the, you know, he's a famous Armenian hero. Um, he was not, he, he, I think a lot of people, I was surprised that a lot of people didn't know that he actually was not in his village <laughs> when the genocide happened. He did, he, he went back, obviously, and his family was murdered, uh, but he did not witness the um, gen genocide himself. He was fighting with the Soviets, um, and and so he, and I. The reason I looked at this case is because Raphael Lemkin, who I mentioned, is the 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 man who coined the the, the term genocide. Uh, he looked to both of the people that I whose trials I discussed, Schwarzbart and Tellerian, as heroes, and that he called Tellerian a the, a symbol of human conscience. And so, and Hannah Arendt discussed both of them as well. And so it was interesting to see this coupling of the Jewish, right, pogroms against Jews and the Armenian genocide, which are not comparable, but nonetheless, these were heroes. And so I, I, wanted, so I realized that the only literature on these trials, really substantial literature, was either on the, done by Armenians Right to write about Armenian heroes, or done by uh, Jewish historians to talk about a Jewish hero. <laughs> so, so I thought, why don't I go read the trial, which is very short. Um, yes, and because he was for a good reason. So that's really why how I got interested. Also, because I had been reading around all the publicity given to the Armenian genocide, uh, and rather than all the diplomatic stuff. And that's how, so I decided, why not look at the trial and see what happened? Right, um, so as you described uh, several figures of witnesses in your book, um, one of them uh, already mentioned Solomon Telerian. He's in the chapter about the Avengers. And then you present the Avengers, the camp survivors. So could you please elaborate a bit more on these different figures of witnesses and uh, what made these um, roles of witnesses change throughout time and our understanding of those witnesses as well? Sure. I think um, in a way this is, uh, it's very similar to your last question in a way because the what I didn't answer um, was why Telerian was a witness if he hadn't witnessed the genocide, obviously. And yes. there are certainly, there's only one book that I know of about the Armenian genocide in Germany itself. You may know this book. Um, I forget the name, but it's Stephen, Stefan Eerich. Yeah. I, yes. it, it is, um, 
Stefan Ulrich's books, yeah, he, he yeah, wrote about German complicity and... Um, yeah, so he wrote, it's a very historic, he's written about the trial in a very, a very uh, Exactly, yes. But, um, but essentially I was trying to see if, if Tellerian was not actually, if he was testifying to something he didn't witness, how did he become a hero? Well, he became a hero because he, he was, it was a revenge killing. And for the, the, he killed, I'm sorry, he killed the architect of the Armenian genocide, essentially, Talat Pasha, and who, for whom there's a memorial in Istanbul. So it's important, you know, to recognize how important, contemporary these, this, the grievances, the injury, how it's still, um, it, it cannot be healed uh, for all, all kinds of obvious reasons. The, these I called him and another, the Jewish man who himself had witnessed pogroms, but had not had his family murdered either, even though he more or less let people believe they had. Uh, he they were both on trial for murder. And I call them Avenger witnesses because they basically take, they become witnesses for their entire community and then for the world, as it were, um, through these very highly staged trials. Uh, these are real assassins. They killed people in cold blood. <laughs> they killed the murderers of their people in cold blood. But they, of course, they were celebrated by the communities because they had no, there was no legal means of punishment, right? They had no recourse against the perpetrators of these crimes. So the in extra legal violence in those cases often is celebrated by the people who, who otherwise have no recourse to justice. So they, that, that was, and, and I guess by distinguishing them from others, what I wanted to do was show how they could, how a, a witness figure who obviously was given dignity by role of his, by virtue of his um, role as a, a, the righteous avenger of his people, could also begin to shift the concept of genocide. One, because, I mean, the, it could also begin to give genocide a meaning. One, because as victim, he has credibility and is listened to, to the kind of story he told was one of unfathomable suffering. Three, what he had suffered was not recognizable in the conventional terms of what war and genocide was supposed to have been. I mean, what war was supposed to have been or what brutality was supposed to have been. And thirdly, the criminals themselves, and this is about the, the unusual nature of it, had killed in a way that was not, it could not be described simply as, um, Conquest. There was no rationale for the killing, uh, at least as it was depicted in these trials. It was just, just something that was animated by cruelty and and eth ethnic conflict, and was very hard to understand in any conventional military fashion. So, and th those are different than than the, the than the concentration camp witness, who is really the political prisoners who ended up in concentration camps after World, I mean, during World War II uh, for their activity. So they chose to, to be witnesses, but they too are now describing an experience that is not the same as war. So, and, and in fact, one, the man that I talk about, David Rousset, he wrote a very important book that gave us this term that nobody uses today, but was the short term hand for uh, the camps the camp experience, which was called the, the concentrationary universe. It was very common until the late 80s. 
And because in English, it doesn't sound very, it's very, not very attractive expression. It was, um, not melodious. And he too, it, this book was used by Hannah Arendt to describe the uni- what she saw as the uniqueness of the camps, um, of this experience of the destruction of humanity itself, as she put it, uh, that it was, there was something different about genocide. You, it, for her, it was connected to imperialism, but it was very different from war, very different from other kinds of brutality um, or natural catastrophe. And, and finally, the, concentr- uh, the Holocaust witness is the Jewish Holocaust survivor about whom I've already spoken a great deal, but has the paradigmatic experience of the concentration camps, which is murder, which is being sent there to be killed, not to be worked to death, not because of a choice, but because of, as they, people always say, who, who they were. And finally, in the end, the conclusion is about where are we now? Who is the moral witness now? And I distinguish that, the, the moral witness now from the witness that developed and was congealed in the figure of the concentration camp um, survivor, the Jewish concentration camp survivor. Right. So um, one of the really um, interesting details that like, um, I could uh, try like throughout uh, the discussion of those trials was how uh, the lawyers were talking about those cases. And it was really amazing to follow that line, like how and what kind of tools or sometimes even um, how the history and the events would be used in different ways by judges, by lawyers, uh, by prosecutors to describe the events, the same event in a very different way. Um, could you please talk a bit more about those uh, interesting, was those intricacies yeah, during the trial? Since there's so many, can you give me a sense of one that you've, you know? Well, I mean, um, any of those actually were interesting because all of them had uh, very different approaches depending on which side was talking. Like if uh, it was the first case in your first um, chapter about civilization, for example, and who was uh, the the brutality perpetrated by, by and uh, who was the Avenger representing or in camp survivor cases, depending on which side and who was bringing the case to the court, the treatment would be different and the uh, understanding of, of the witness as well. So uh, whichever case you want to reflect on. Um, you, I guess you I would say, ahead. yeah, okay, I would say, First, it's, I guess for me, it's important that you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's important to note that they do all have in common, which I think is very interesting, that none of them have an important legal role to play. They really only exist for purposes of putting these crimes, staging these crimes. And so for that reason, as you know, they, they are, the vocabulary, the trial transcripts, it's all highly politicized. Um, it all depends on how the lawyers stage the identities of the victims and the perpetrators, et cetera, et cetera, because these are all about trying to, they're both didactic. They want to teach lessons, but they're also, uh, there are people on trial. (laughs) Um, So I think in the German case in particular, there's so much politics around it. So I could take the, the, they tried to keep, the German case is the 
is the trial of Teleri on the Armenian Avenger. Um, they tried to keep the German government, did not want the German complicity in the genocide exposed, and so really wouldn't let a lot of documents appear in court that would have confirmed the German uh, the German's role in in conspiring with the Turks, or at least in effectively not helping the Armenians. And so the truth was not told at all. I mean, <laughs> essentially, ironically, he, the, he actually, the trial lasts almost less than two days because they want the trial, the government wants the trial to be over with. And the prosecution is not very powerful precisely because they don't have a lot to work with. And the lawyer seems incompetent. So there's also that. There's also just how competent is the lawyer, whereas the defense was very, very well. Uh, but uh, they were famous lawyers. But more importantly, they were um, able to. They they had to walk a fine line between condemning German conduct during the war and uh, defending an Armenian who's plight was caused by a German ally, right? So how they they parse that is just quite interesting, I think. But I don't know if that, you know, these political, in each case, there's something like this, right? Some story about the politics of each trial is pretty fascinating. And I think that's what makes uh, reading this book really interesting because uh, it gets back to that line, but at the same time, each case is different from the other. And shows these opportunities of how the reality and the truth can be used and represented in different ways depending on the needs of the time and the people who are charged with doing that. Um, well, if as, as you uh, talked a little bit about uh, Holocaust witnesses, the paradigmic uh, witness, uh, why don't we also reflect on this um, last figure that uh, you talk about, uh, about this global witness, because you talk about global witness, but also you bring another actor there, the counter witness, and it sounds like a very complex idea. Would you please explain that? Um, yeah, I guess I, they, I have these two witness figures, one the global victim, which is basically the figure of the victim in a world in which genocide has become common, meaning we now assume that genocides are everywhere and they will take place, that even the, this, the phrase never again sounds naive in a world in which the Armenian genocide has been recognized, but there's, there is still a whole geopolitics of denial around the Armenian genocide still in a world in which uh, we've had their regular genocides, the, the words never again seem quaint. You know, they, they don't appear particularly convincing. And yet, paradoxically, it's the same moment in which we've had the institutionalization of humanitarianism and the, the prosecution of genocide. Actually, we now have an international court, which I, I'm sure your listeners know, but it's really astonishing when you think about how recent it is. I mean, the, the international court came, really only started working at full capacity in 2002. <laughs> which is extraordinary. Um, so actually a lot has happened. Um, nonetheless, there is this figure, the global victim, that no longer has the authority that the 
witness, the moral witness that emerged over time and was kind of almost sacralized. Uh, that is the figure of Holocaust Jewry that was that we returned to during the Bosnian conflict, the West at least. Um, right. That that witness attached to a certain event and a certain kind of suffering seems to have dissipated, and you now have this generic victim, but and and that's always invoked as the the rationale for humanitarian interventions for for the, the court procedures, etc. And a lot of legal critics have talked about this, and a lot of critics of humanitarianism and its institutions have said that you know this victim is a is no longer has agency, right? Is a uh, they talk about humanitarian governance and not the uh, witness or actually the victim, him or herself, right? That the victim, which came out of the Holocaust, at least eventually, was at least became a figure who possessed knowledge none of us did. You know, they were. It was all a projection, obviously, of the public, but there was a sort of image that gave them wisdom and knowledge of suffering. And now, once again, we see a victim, but I, I, I because it's so recent, I uh, try to say that the global victim is not separable yet, at least from this notion of a counter witness, which is barely visible, but I think um, is at least another figure after the Holocaust witness of, of hope despair it's it, it is our hour you can't see me but I'm, I'm putting the hour in in um, quotation marks our con our human conscience uh, kind of raging at this failures of a system that does doesn't seem to work to prevent genocide now whether this is true or not I don't know but that's the argument is that there is this figure it's very hard to get at and it's a it's uh, clearly a con the conscience of in my in the work of scholars and people who write about victims. Um, I'm not you know, and I do think it emerges in sort of a certain kind of left populism that we see, kind of populist politics on the left. Uh, you can see some image of this of of a kind of angry, despairing victim, but but one who who accuses us of not not doing what we should to help not doing enough yeah. um as we talked a lot about the witness now let's get back to the crime itself because uh one of the important i think goals of the book as well is to show not just how the witnesses and how we understand the witnesses this idea changes but also how uh, the understanding uh, our understanding of genocide and other mass atrocities changes throughout time. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, you are also saying that it keeps changing even uh, nowadays while we are talking about it. So would you please talk about that a little bit more? Right. Um, you mean about how... Like how... changes over time. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yeah, I guess I would say that, you know, I don't want to be too linear, but clearly there is the concept of genocide is first distinguished from the concept of, or wait, the concept of the witness develops from being a 
an avenger, a righteous avenger. I, I already described that. And I briefly touched on the concentration camp survivor and the Holocaust witness who are attributed with really the Holocaust witness much more, a certain kind of dignity. Uh, mm -hmm. redeemed, they're redeemed from their objection, which they suffered in the camps. I, I, I say that I think it's problematic. I, you know, victims shouldn't have to be redeemed, but it's a very Christian uh, thematic and very, uh, it's, it's, it's embedded in our culture, this notion of sacrifice. And, um, but what, so what's happened, I think the most important thing I can point to is that with the Holocaust witness, the agency I discussed that was attributed to them, this kind of knowledge, and, and this is why they were criticized, or why the image that they had been attributed with was criticized, because they were seen as almost sacred objects um, that couldn't be touched. By, um, and this has obviously changed dramatically with the, and so I guess the important points here historically are or the important distinction historically is between a genocide, the Holocaust of European Jewry, that was seen as something shocking that no one had ever seen before, right? That, that, which is not, again, this is not historically true. This is how the Holocaust of European Jewry became the paradigmatic genocide because it became the genocide that no one could imagine who's, who's the injury of which no one could have imagined and how to express this injury, the shock of bodies of, you know, piles of bodies of using gas chambers, all of that was, you know, unimaginable. Whereas now, and I think this is the most important historical shift, that shock is completely lost. Right. And so the global victim and the, which is again, a paradox, this derives from the fact that, as I said before, genocide has seemed to become part of our geopolitical landscape. It's not separate from it. It seems to be inextric inextricable from, uh, from politics. Uh, and so the mass murder of people called genocide, call it genocide or not. I mean, that, that's a whole other set of political, uh, something you, one gives political considerations to. It, it, so the new victim represents this shift away from something unique in Western culture to something that has become, I mean, common is a little exaggerated, but, you know, it happens frequently. Uh, and it may have happened frequently a long time ago, but it didn't have a name. Right. And maybe that is why also the, this term genocide has become also part of the popular culture. I mean, even every other movie now, whether it's like a superhero movie or a cartoon, will include the word genocide at some point. And you're yeah. like, wow, this has become a usual now. Right. Well, the same with the, um, think about the word Holocaust. Uh, the, the, the image of the Holocaust was used, is used for animals, the environment. Mm -hmm. It's used for murdering animals, the butchery of animals and animal right. rights. It's used to describe what's happening to the environment. It's used... Yeah. Ecocide. We haven't seen it for the pandemic yet, <laughs> but it's, you know, so. Right. Exactly. Well, going from this um, 
theoretical discussion to something very practical. As a researcher myself, I'm always interested in the sources when I talk to uh, scholars. So um, which, where were your sources? What kind of sources you used for this volume? And how did the research process go? And how, pardon, the last part? How did the research process unfold? I see. Uh, well, mostly for, it, it, most of these sources are published or they are trial transcripts. So I didn't, there was not too much archival work that had to be done because I was interested, and this I think is why I'm an intellectual historian or a cultural historian on the border of those two, because I, instead of going to the archives to try to reconstruct the, why these trials took place when they did, I, I obviously discuss all of that, but I'm much more interested in something that's very hard to get at, which is, uh, the relationship between the symbol, the witness, and history, right? How does the how can you have a symbol with a history? How does this how does the symbolic realm, how is it shaped by historical circumstances? It's actually harder to get at than you might think. Using a cause and effect analysis, I'm not sure that helps to explain why these things change because they're very ineffable. Right, symbols, unless they're made into sculptures and uh, they're very ephemeral, ineffable, and they're the stuff of memory, of, of imagination and fantasy. So I use these trial transcripts. One is in German, the German trial, there's, there are several in France, and the Eichmann trial transcript, the trial was held in, there were three official languages and Hebrew. Uh, it's a and there were, it was transmitted in many different languages, but there are official transcripts in several. There, there are tons of mistakes in this transcript as well. So I was interpreting these transcripts. Uh, and you'd be surprised, there are only, I, Yale Law Library has the trial, I, to, I was very lucky, has the trial transcript of um, the Tellerian case, uh, okay. the German transcript. And then there's a, there's one in Berlin, but so I didn't go into the archives to find all the German. I was lucky too, because a lot of that stuff was recently published. A lot of the German diplomatic documents around the Armenian genocide, but, but I did have to read all the secondary sources about the genocide, the Armenian genocide, about the pogroms uh, against your, uh, Ukrainian Jews and literature about the second world war and the camps, all of that, that you know of. And the Eichmann trial, which was, Again, in, in some of these cases, especially the Eichmann trial, the secondary source literature is so huge. You, I, I can imagine people looking at saying, and what more can be said about the Eichmann trial? You know, for, for people out there who know, it, it's, you know, another chapter on the Eichmann trial, right? And I really was trying not to, to say, to even engage the usual debates. I mean, I, I say what they are so I can move on. Um, by putting that something like the Eichmann trial in line with all these other trials, which is an instinct. It's not a, you know, it's not a causal factor. There, you know. um, so, yeah, so I guess there's a huge secondary source literature, a huge, the trial transcripts are pretty demanding. The, the Schwarzbard trial is in Evo, the, it's on microfilm in Evo. Uh, or it's in Paris, but it's easier to get it in Evo. And um, yeah. it's uh, almost 2,000 pages, and it's it's very hard. To, it's a, but it's very interesting. So, and then I read all the, 
I read a lot of newspaper coverage of each trial. So that's when I say published sources, I don't just mean secondary. I mean, a lot of newspaper coverage, that sort of thing. So I don't know, is, is, is there anything else that I am missing? No, I believe uh, you reflected uh, on most of the sources that uh, you have used. And uh, for the latest, uh, the last chapters, you also included a lot of secondary literature on history of humanitarianism, which also was uh, very informative and helpful to understand the, the um, current structure of the society and the way we see the world, we see the weakness, we see the atrocities and help. Yeah, that chapter was hard actually in source-wise because I think people look and they say, how is this... Uh, how are these his, how is this history but the whole point is that it's it's historicizing things we think of as contemporary debates and trying to put them in a framework that um, can allow us to see them as exactly it provides the context to understand the yeah. discussion um, so my next question would be about your targeted audience uh, uh, who is your targeted audience and what do you expect them to take away from this book well, I mean, anybody that's interested in genocide, I guess. I mean, the, I think it's, I think, and, in, and especially in the memory of genocide and how in the West we imagine genocide, how, how we came to imagine genocide, I think. So anyone interested in that question in any way or who didn't think about it as a question prior to, to my posing it, perhaps not here, but in general, because because it's become to seem so self-evident, like we think we know what it is, right, I, I think. And so to say that there was a time, we all know this, but to say actually, what did it mean not to know this? What did it mean? How was this, how did we acquire this knowledge? So that's a question I think anybody interested in that kind of question um, might find the book interesting, I would hope. Um, anyone interested in the the way in which this is not a legal history but the way in which trials can have political effects so the way in which trials can be staged and the what the politics of trials i think one, one of the reasons these trials have been forgotten for the most part uh, or have been understood in much narrower context is because they had very little legal impact like the, even the Eichmann trial, it's not remembered for its legal contribution, right? It's remembered because it became symbolic of totalitarianism and, you know, our fight in the Cold War against Hitler and Stalin. But, but the, and certainly the Tellerian trial, it's, you know, I, I, if you read the Armenian literature on it, it's, it, it, there's a man named Edward Alexander, do you know him? And he, he said, you know, I met him. <laughs> you know, and he's almost, you know, I saw him. And so as a little boy, he saw him and met him and he was the hero. And so, but these trials, that's, so it's important because they otherwise have been written, when they're mentioned, they're mentioned as kind of footnotes to other bigger developments. So I think it's important for people who are interested in how trials can have meaning, even if they don't create, um, Legal legacy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so those those are two. I mean, I oh, and finally, let me very briefly is that this assumption that histories of genocide have to be about whether the Holocaust is the worst genocide of all time or colonial genocide or did colon I mean, there are lots of historical questions now about colonial genocide, and I think the worst 
of these arguments says the Holocaust conceals historical genocide. I mean, it, it conceals imperial genocides. The Holocaust is a Western, uh, you know, that's also true, but it, it's, uh, it's more interesting to ask why it became what it did uh, symbolically rather than to note that it did and then criticize who I don't know for having done it. Um, the, it, but it does tell us what the politics of memory are, I think, around this, without in any way trying to engage debates about which genocide is worse, which I think sometimes these things can be, you know, I think there are people who work on colonial genocides that feel so frustrated at the lack of recognition um, of colonial genocides that, uh, that, they, that it can almost become a slightly wanting to sideline the Holocaust, which is fine, right, in Western memory again. But but that doesn't seem to be particularly um, fruitful as a as a conclusion. Basically, it's to find out why, you know, not to make it more or less central, but to ask how, why it became symbolically so important and by what process, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. It does, yeah. Uh, well, my final question is about your work now, uh, if I may ask. What are you working on now? Oh, that's a good question always to ask somebody because you except they'll never stop talking. Um, <laughs> the, I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing now on the concept of bystanders. I went back to French history, so it's in occupied France, because I think France is very interesting because it's, uh, because it's occupied, but because um, it, it's a, it's a, because so many French Jews lived and so many non-French Jews died, and I'm trying to take all the truisms about the meaning of bystanding and trying to understand what it meant to be a bystander historically, rather than meaning there is violence in the bystander-victim relationship. And, but we, how do we describe it? It's invisible for the most part. And in fact, what I'm really interested in is the framework within which um, violence in which visible violence, right, overt persecution one sees in the streets, comes to define what it means to be uh, complicit. So if you're somehow one of those people or you don't do anything when you see it, you're, you're, you're crossing a line. But if there's just persecution and violence and you're, they're invisible to you, <laughs> then you're not, you're, you become a bystander who is passive or... And it's it just not a very, again, a very, uh, as I said before, fruitful way of conceptualizing the problem. So I think to bring a new perspective onto that would be, there's a lot of people writing about bystanders, but I think uh, mostly through local histories and micro histories. And, um, but no, the psychology of bystanders is very rarely historicized. It's usually talked about in moral terms. So that's a, that's something. I'm well, that, that sounds like an amazing project and I look forward to seeing that book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, Dr. Dean, uh, thank you very much for uh, being with us virtually today and for sharing your work. Thank you very much. And I, I hope everyone will stay very healthy. <laughs> yes, we need to stay home, stay healthy and safe these days. <laughs> thank you very much.